Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight, former President Trump speaks after all. The judge lets him make closing remarks in the civil fraud case, accusing him of inflating his net worth. What's the former president saying? Arlene Richards is at the courthouse. Former President Trump beating Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, not just in the polls, but in TV ratings. How many people tuned in to the Trump town hall last night? And what's Vivek Ramaswamy doing to back Trump in a pending Supreme Court decision? Iris Taub in Iowa. House Speaker Mike Johnson hitting road bumps to getting his spending deal across the finish line. Now the Senate is readying a bill to kick the can down the road yet again. Hunter Biden pleads not guilty in a Los Angeles court. What could he face if convicted on federal tax charges? Christina Corona in California. As the civilian death toll in the Gaza Strip continues to climb, Israel now finds itself in court facing charges of genocide. Emotions run high as pro-Israeli and pro-Palestinian protesters surround the courthouse. Jason Perry reports. This is NTD Evening News. Live. From our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City, here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. In New York today, former President Trump's back in court for final arguments in the civil fraud case filed by Attorney General Letitia James. James sued Trump in 2022, alleging that he and other co-defendants used fraudulent statements of financial conditions to obtain millions in economic benefits. The presiding judge, Arthur Angaran, agreed with James and ruled against Trump a year later in 2023. A non-jury trial was held last year to determine the value of the case. James had previously asked for $250 million, but recently increased that amount to $370 million. We now turn to NTD's Arlene Richards, who's at the courthouse in Manhattan and was present at the proceeding earlier today. Arlene, what can you tell us about the proceeding today? Well, former President Trump was in the courtroom. He appeared to be calm, but a little unhappy. He was expecting the judge to allow him to make his own closing remarks, which the judge had originally denied. The judge did reconsider that decision in the courtroom today, and he allowed Trump to speak for five minutes. Trump reiterated many of the comments that he has made throughout this trial, that it is politically motivated and that it is election interference. The judge cautioned him to limit his remarks to only the law and the facts in the case, to which Trump responded that it would be very difficult for him to do that because he said the case itself is outside the law and the facts. He said he's an innocent man and that Letitia James should pay him for what she has put him through. He made some additional remarks at a press conference. Let's take a look. We've gone through years with uh, this person. Uh, she's a political hack, the attorney general. Uh, the judge is obviously extremely friendly with the group, and we'll see uh, what happens. I think maybe he uh, may surprise people on a positive side. We'll have to see what happens exactly. The, the, the uh, proceedings today were a recap of the trial in, in terms of the arguments that were made today. The, the prosecution saying that Trump uh, 
violated some of the financial statements or he fraudulently made financial statements and the defense saying that there was no fraud and there is no case. The defense did request a dismissal of the case at the end of their closing arguments, but given that this judge has already ruled that Trump was fraudulent, it's, it's probably not likely that he's going to dismiss the case this time. Back to you. Arlene, thank you for that update. Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley continue to clash after last night's debate. Meanwhile, former President Trump is again showing his domination in the race by beating both of them in TV ratings in dueling events last night. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more from Iowa. According to data shared with us today by Fox News, Trump's town hall last night got nearly twice the viewership of the CNN debate between Governor Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, which was aired around the same time. Some 5.7 million people tuned into the town hall by Trump last night, while only 2.9 million people tuned into the CNN debate. And furthermore, Trump's town hall also got nearly 2 million more viewers than the DeSantis town hall, which was on Tuesday night. It also got 2.7 million more viewers than a Nikki Haley town hall on Monday. So it's very clear to see that Trump's dominating in this race right here, at least in the amount of attention that he's getting. Meanwhile, also in the same line is a poll released today by the Suffolk University showing that over 54% of voters right here in Iowa say that Trump is their first choice. But it's also notable that the same poll is also the first poll recently to find that Nikki Haley is gaining a clear lead over Governor Ron DeSantis. The show said Nikki Haley's polling at 20%, while Governor Ron DeSantis only polling at 13%. Meanwhile, Vivek Ramaswamy, who is also holding events, was not qualified for last night's debate and told me that it's a fake debate because CNN was not taking into account some polls that would have made him qualified, he told me. And also today, Ramaswamy filed an amicus brief to U.S. Supreme Court supporting Trump in the Colorado ruling to try to bar Trump from the ballots there. Vivek argued that Trump's political opponents are trying to bar him from the ballot because, quote, they cannot beat him in a free and fair election. Meanwhile, Trump, who's in New York for his civil fraud trial today, sent his son Donald Trump Jr. to Iowa today, who's speaking just now at this restaurant not too far away from Des Moines campaigning on behalf of his dad. And tomorrow, Carrie Lake will also be here in Iowa campaigning for Trump. And that's before Trump returns to Iowa this upcoming weekend for more rallies and events right before the caucus on Monday. Back to you. And NTD News will bring you live coverage of the 2024 Iowa caucuses next Monday. Our team of dedicated reporters and our esteemed expert panels for real-time updates and in-depth analysis. Join Steve Lance and myself on The Nation Decides 2024 as we break down the action live on Monday, January 15th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. It's going to be a historic night, so be sure to tune in. With a partial government shutdown looming just eight days from now, it's looking increasingly likely that Congress may kick the can down the road yet again. Republicans are demanding steeper cuts and border policy changes, while Democrats are unwilling to go back on a previous deal made with the White House. NTD's Melina Weisskopf reports from Capitol Hill. Next Friday is the first of two deadlines to fund the government before a shutdown kicks in. Now Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is setting into motion a bill to temporarily extend government funding, but it's unclear for how long. Unfortunately, it has become crystal clear that it will take more than a week to finish the appropriations process. 
Passing another continuing resolution is a position that House Speaker Mike Johnson originally opposed, but now he's softening on this as Republicans in both chambers are insisting on having changes at the southern border before funding the government. This week, those Republicans are doubling down on those fiscal and border demands. Well, we're looking for the right legislation to move forward, not just any legislation. The people I represent, they want us to cut spending, secure the border. That's what we need to do. He's part of a group of House Republicans who are expressing strong discontent with their new speaker's $1.7 trillion spending deal with Senate leader Chuck Schumer. Johnson says that he doesn't have a choice here and he secured the wins that he could, such as rescinding billions of dollars in IRS funding. Now he's actively meeting with those frustrated Republicans and earlier squashed reports that he's considering backing out of that deal with Schumer. Let me tell you what's going on. We're, we're having uh, thoughtful conversations about funding options and priorities. I've made no commitments, so if you hear otherwise, it's just simply not Are true. It's now become very clear that Johnson is hitting the same roadblocks as his predecessor did in trying to work out a deal on this controversial spending issue as he works with the razor-thin majority in the House, persistent House Republicans, and Democrats controlling the Senate and the White House. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Hunter Biden is in court today in California. He pleaded not guilty to federal tax charges. Entity's Christina Corona has more from the courthouse. Hunter Biden made his first court appearance today here in Los Angeles, where he is facing nine federal tax charges. Hunter Biden, the son of President Joe Biden, entered a plea of not guilty in response to charges concerning his failure to file and pay income taxes. The younger Biden failed to pay $1.4 million in taxes to the IRS. Hunter has been charged with four counts of failure to pay, two counts of failure to file, two counts of filing a false return, and a count of tax evasion. Instead, he allegedly used the money to fund an extravagant lifestyle that included drugs, escorts, luxury hotels and rental properties, and exotic cars. If convicted, Hunter could face an arrest warrant. U.S. District Judge Mark Scarcy said he's considering a June 20th trial date. As the civilian death toll in the Gaza Strip continues to climb, Israel now finds itself facing charges of genocide. South Africa laid out its case before the International Court of Justice, saying Israel has violated the Genocide Convention. NTD's Jason Perry has the update. Screams were heard in Israel near its border with the Gaza Strip on Thursday. Family members of hostages yelled for their loved ones, hoping they could hear them. Can you hear us? It's Eddie and Breed. We came the whole way to Gaza that you can hear us, that you will hear us. And on the same day, people also shouted for the hostages in the Netherlands. Bring them home. As they marched towards the International Court of Justice in The Hague, where Israel is being charged with genocide. And at the same time, pro-Palestinian protesters also marched towards the court, where they could watch the trial from outside. I expect uh, the judges uh, to, to uh, order by law. Right? And to call it what it is, it's a genocide against civilians in, in Gaza. And South Africa laid out its case. South Africa contends 
that Israel has transgressed Article 2 of the Convention by committing actions that fall within the definition of genocide. Despite the horror of the genocide against the Palestinian people being live-streamed from Gaza to our mobile phones, computers, and television screens, the first genocide in history where its victims are broadcasting their own destruction in real time in the desperate, so far vain hope that the world might do something. An Israeli spokesperson said this after the first day of the trial. They talked in a brief sentence about the October 7 massacre. They carried on to talk about Israel. They talked about the suffering in Gaza. And they never stopped to mention, even in one word, that there are 136 Israelis that are still held captive in Gaza by terrorists. This is a humanitarian catastrophe, almost 100 days. The International Court of Justice's decisions are final and binding, but the court has no way to enforce them. Israel is set to defend itself on Friday, January 12th. Jason Perry, NTD News. Meanwhile, at Harvard University, six students are suing their school for allegedly allowing the spread of anti-Semitism. The lawsuit says that Harvard applies a double standard when it comes to enforcing anti-discrimination policies and that, that it has failed to protect Jewish students from harassments. More news from the Middle East. Iran has seized an oil tanker carrying crude oil from Iraq en route to Turkey. That news, according to Iranian state media, comes after the U.S. impounded the same ship last year when it sailed under a different name. It was part of an enforcement operation for oil sanctions. The latest incident happened near the Strait of Hormuz, one of the world's most strategically important waterways. It lies on the most direct route for oil shipments from the Middle East to other countries. The White House commented today. I would put little stock in anything coming out of Tehran. Uh, this was a commercial vessel freely transiting international waters. No, no justification whatsoever to, to seize it. None whatsoever. They need to let it go. Over in Texas, a woman is now facing 150 years behind bars for allegedly plotting a scheme against the U.S. Army. She reportedly stole $100 million out of the military and used those funds for houses, luxury cars and jewelry. 57-year-old Janet Yamanaka Milo worked as a civilian financial program manager. She started a business in 2016, claiming to provide services to troops and their family members. According to the indictment, she used those funds to buy over 30 homes, luxury cars and jewelry. If convicted, she could face up to 150 years behind bars. Coming up, all eyes on Taiwan as it holds its presidential election on Saturday. But what's communist China trying to do? Our guest dives in. A country singer and former drug dealer testifying before Congress today. Find out how he says we can tackle the ongoing fentanyl crisis. And emergency rescue teams overwhelmed by the bodies of deceased illegal immigrants. A fire chief tells Congress on some days the ambulance sirens never seem to stop. That and more after the break here on NTD Evening News.
Welcome back. Taiwan's presidential race is in a few days. A senior White House official accused communist China of meddling in the island's upcoming election. The State Department echoed that statement. You've been uh, very clear about uh, the, our opposition to outside interference or malign influence in Taiwan's elections. Uh, we also have a deep confidence in Taiwan's democratic process and believe uh, it is for Taiwan voters to uh, decide their next leader. On the condition of anonymity, the White House official said that the Biden administration's foreign policy towards Taiwan will remain the same. That's regardless of which candidate is elected. And the White House is planning on sending an unofficial delegation to Taiwan after the election. For decades, the Chinese Communist Party sees the self-governed island as its own territory and has vowed to take it by force if necessary. That's despite never having ruled it. Joining us now to discuss what's at stake in Taiwan's presidential election, we have retired General Robert Spaulding. He is a national security analyst and a contributor to the Epic Times. General Spaulding, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you. Great to be back. Now, General, the Taiwan presidential election is this Saturday, and now a piece from the Washington Post is noting four ways the Chinese regime is trying to interfere in this election. This goes from fake news, buying out local officials, economic pressure, and also gray zone military tactics. Now, what does all of this tell us about what's at stake in this election? Well, uh, I was at the uh, election in 2020 and observed the presidential election uh, where Tsai uh, was elected, President Tsai was elected. Uh, I got to go to the, the two rallies, the DPP and the KMT, and uh, I actually met with President Tsai, and we talked about uh, Chinese Communist Party uh, influence into their political process, and I found her very engaged, very knowledgeable, and the government taking action to you know, be very transparent with the population. There were also non-governmental organizations uh, that were dealing with you know, accuracy and transparency with regard to media and social media. I would say the one thing that, that uh, I applauded the Taiwanese for was the fact that their elections were very open and transparent. Anybody could go to any polling station and observe the counting of the vote. And I think a lot of the things that, you know, we saw in this country that happened in, in 2020, quite frankly, just Taiwan had already been prepared for and dealt with. And now the candidates do go from more pro-independence to pro-Beijing even. What is Beijing's end goal here when it comes to Taiwan? Will that change depending on which candidate and party wins? Well, when um, Xi Jinping, you know, had its, uh, you know, latest uh, leadership shuffle uh, with the standing committee, you know, one of the uh, people appointed is Wang Huning. Wang Huning is known as kind of the political brains behind Xi Jinping and uh, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao. So he's been around for a long time. And they've assigned him as the person that's responsible for bringing Taiwan back into the fold uh, under the Chinese Communist Party. And so... You know, their goal is really to uh, reunify the country through subversion, basically influence the, the population to give up its freedoms and join the Communist Party as essentially the slaves of, uh, of the Communist Party. But I think, you know, that's not going to happen. I don't see that happening anytime soon with the Taiwanese people. And therefore, I think that's why Xi Jinping continues to say that military force is on the table. 
Hmm. And on that note, this does come as two wars are already unfolding around the world in Ukraine and the Middle East, and tensions continue growing around Taiwan. Now, how much do you see foreign policy in China playing into the U.S. presidential elections? Well, that's the, again, that's where I have the concerns because, you know, the Chinese Communist Party has enormous sway with our corporate sector, with our financial sector, with our with our university system uh, and, you know, are involved in influencing state, local and federal elections. Uh, if you remember, the secretary of state um, during the Trump administration talked to the governors and explained, hey, you have Chinese Communist Party influencing your elections and your political process within your own state. So they are up and down the line in terms of influencing our political process. They're influencing our corporations who, as you know, donate to campaigns. I think I am much more concerned about the Chinese Communist Party influencing our corporate sector and financial sector and in turn influencing our election in 2020. Uh, or 2024, rather than, you know, being worried about Taiwan. On the note of influence, there is a report on Chinese infiltration in America titled, The Chinese Soldier Trained by Americans to Kill Americans. Now, this follows multiple reports of Western pilots training Chinese pilots. How seriously should we be taking this? Very seriously. Um, you know, the, uh, our special forces are some of the best trained in the world. And the fact that these training programs, which our special forces actually utilize, and to have Chinese nationals go into this training and then be able to go back to China and then be the and train the trainers, that's enormously challenging because we accept that the Chinese are going to steal our technology. We should not also be allowing them to steal our tactics, techniques, and procedures for how we conduct military operations. That's just absolutely crazy. Now, this does come as Border Patrol is reporting a 1,000% increase in Chinese nationals crossing illegally into the U.S. Could this be related? You know, it's hard to say. I tend to believe it is related. And the reason I believe it's related is because there is an exit ban in China. In other words, you cannot just leave the country. The Chinese Communist Party has to allow you to leave. So, if people are leaving the country and then making their way through the southern border, that means the Chinese Communist Party not only knows, it has approved that. So I would absolutely consider those people to be here under the auspices of the Chinese Communist Party. Quite concerning indeed. General Spaulding, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Senators on Capitol Hill today investigating the devastating impact fentanyl has on the U.S. Musician Jason DeFord, better known as Jelly Roll, testified as a witness. He did time in prison on drug charges, but now educates people about drug abuse. NTD's Arian Postarm has more. I was a part of the problem. I am here now standing as a man that wants to be a part of the solution. I brought my community down. I hurt people. I was the uneducated man in the kitchen playing chemists with drugs I knew absolutely nothing about, just like these drug dealers are doing right now when they're mixing every drug on the market with fentanyl, and they're killing the people we love. Musician Jason DeFord on Thursday urged lawmakers to pass the Fent of Fentanyl Act. The Senate already passed it last year, but the House did not. The act would declare international fentanyl trafficking a national emergency, require sanctions on transnational criminal organizations, take special measures against fentanyl-related money laundering, and more. 
Republican Senator Tim Scott at the hearing said we have to follow the money. According to the senator, it's important to pass the Fentanyl Act to impose sanctions on Chinese and Mexican organizations trafficking fentanyl and to use anti-money laundering measures against them. We have to hit them where it hurts, and that's their wallets. The illicit money engine needs to be turned off, and it needs to be turned off now. DeFord said the fentanyl crisis is a national emergency, which deserves much more attention than it is getting right now. 190 people a day overdose and die every single day in the United States of America. That is about a 737 plane. That's what about a 737 aircraft can carry. Could you imagine the national media attention it would get if they were reporting that a plane was crashing every single day and killing 190 people? According to the CDC, there have been over 100,000 overdose deaths in the U.S. in 2022. That's 2% more than in 2021. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. We have new information about an illegal immigrant who's charged for killing a mother and son in a car accident. Officials now say the suspect had already been deported multiple times before allegedly causing the alcohol-fueled crash. Last month, a 37-year-old man from El Salvador allegedly crashed his car into another car in Colorado. He was later arrested and is now facing multiple charges, including vehicular homicide. An ICE spokesperson recently told the Epic Times that authorities had deported the man four times in the past. That was in 2009, 2012, 2014 and again in 2015. He might now be deported once more. After last month's crash, ICE Denver lodged a detainer to seek his arrest. Record high illegal immigration is putting a strain on various social services. That's what a border town official and an immigration expert told Congress today. NTD's Dave Martin has more. There are days it seems that the ambulance wheels never stop. Fire Department Chief Manuel Mello of Eagle Pass, Texas, told the House Judiciary Subcommittee about the rise in dead body recoveries over illegal immigration. We are being overwhelmed with EMS calls and body recoveries. Countless children dehydrated or with hypothermia and in shock that are transported to the hospitals. Young ladies going into labor as soon as they cross the river. And other incidents, including the rail car accidents where Amputations are common. Bello says it's costing 15000 to 18000 taxpayer dollars a day to respond solely to the illegal immigrants. Illegal immigrants use more than emergency medical services. Immigration expert Stephen Camarada says they use a lot of welfare as well. We estimate that 59% of households headed by illegal immigrants use one of the major welfare programs compared to 39% for U.S.-born households. Use of these programs likely totals by illegal immigrants about $42 billion a year. Camarada says illegal immigrants create a fiscal drain because they obtain more in welfare than they pay in taxes. Legal immigrants at the hearing noted a double standard in government policy. My husband to sign off on a lot of papers that I'm not going to be burdened in society and never took any benefits. I came for opportunities and job and hard work, not to welfare. Now we're creating a system where a lot of people come illegal and get benefits much better than you come here legally. Congresswoman Victoria Spartz immigrated from Ukraine when she was in her 20s. She says she believes the current immigration system is perverse 
and is hurting legitimate asylum seekers. They include women and children from Ukraine, Syria, and Afghanistan. This is Dave Martin for NTD News. Coming up, did New York prosecutors undervalue former President Trump's assets? Our guest says that's likely the case. Here, his assessment of the civil fraud trial in New York. Plastics have been found in human blood, lungs, and the food we eat. What kind of effect is it having on our health, and what can we do about it? Find out more after the break here on NTD News. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. South Africa laid out its case before the International Court of Justice, saying Israel has violated the Genocide Convention. Pro-Israel and pro-Palestine protesters surrounded the courthouse in The Hague, the Netherlands. Iran seized an oil tanker carrying crude oil from Iraq en route to Turkey. It happened in international waters near the Strait of Hormuz, one of the world's most strategically important waterways. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer put into motion a new short-term government funding bill. Meanwhile, House Speaker Mike Johnson faced obstacles on spending plans from within his own party. Hunter Biden appeared in a courthouse in California for his arraignment. He pleaded not guilty to federal tax charges. Former President Trump appeared at a New York courthouse and delivered closing arguments in his civil fraud trial. He said the case was politically motivated and called it election interference. Joining us now to discuss Trump's New York civil fraud trial, we have Mark Ruskin. He's a former assistant district attorney for Brooklyn, New York, and a retired FBI agent. Mark Ruskin, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. It's great to be back. Thanks for inviting me. Now, former President Trump addressed the court today, calling the case against him, quote, a political witch hunt. Now, what is your overall assessment of how this case has been conducted and the fairness of this trial? Well, the very fact that these charges were brought argues against fairness uh, being a factor in this trial in that ordinarily this is not something which is handled in the criminal court. These kinds of regulations typically are handled administratively and not criminally. So the very fact that this was brought by a prosecutor, by the state attorney general in a criminal court, really begs the question of fairness and makes you wonder, one wonder why, the, why it was, that forum was selected in the first place. And, and fairness is probably not the reason. Now, from the very beginning, Trump and his legal team have repeatedly said that his assets were actually undervalued in this case. Now, how much of the case rides on this point, which Trump's attorneys argue is factually inaccurate? Well, it is a significant factor because it's essentially a bifurcated trial, which is to mean that there's two stages, two separate and distinct stages. And the first stage has to do with whether or not uh, there was an undervaluation. And the second stage has to do with what the amounts were. So uh, the valuation is very significant in that if the valuations were uh, incorrect, then the first stage would collapse and then it would cause the second stage to collapse. So uh, I would suggest that uh, you know, the, there's a, and there's a lot of reason to believe 
that the evaluations were not done accurately and that there were many errors that were committed in the course of this trial. Hmm. And now, New York Attorney General Letitia James is seeking $370 million plus 9% interest in penalties from Trump as part of the lawsuit. Now, if the judge grants her request, who would receive the money and what is it going to be used for? Well, typically, it would go back uh, into the general funds of the state. It depends what the forum is that the, is, uh, the case is being handled in. So here... If it was a federal case, for example, it would go into it would become part of the federal uh, budget, federal funds. Here, it's since New York State is bringing the case, it would go into the state general funds and could be used essentially for a variety of purposes, depending on what the governor uh, were to choose. Here, it would be probably going to the governor's hands. Now, the fact that. Letitia James is involved on such a regular basis also raises the question of whether or not there's a political overtone in this case by the uh, governor's and the state attorney general's office, because typically <clears throat> a state attorney general doesn't spend a whole lot of time in the courtroom. They have busy administrative tasks to perform. Yet in this case, uh, state attorney general Letitia James spent an inordinate amount of time in the courtroom, and one would have to ask, what was she doing there, since probably it had nothing to do with the prosecution of the case. Given that if Trump loses this case, what are his options for appeal? Could he actually take it up to the Supreme Court, ultimately? Well, initially, you know, his attorneys would seek to show that there were a multitude of errors committed by the trial court. And one could argue that many of the decisions made by the judge in the course of the case were erroneous uh, and showed bias. And these could be uh, you know, all accumulated and utilized uh, for the purpose of an appeal. Whether or not it could be appealed to the Supreme Court, however, is perhaps doubtful at this point, although one would have to review the record before making a decision. But essentially, this is a state case involving state regulations and state laws. And would one would have to have a basis for bringing it to the Supreme Court that gives the Supreme Court jurisdiction. So Trump's, uh, President Trump's lawyers will have to review the transcript, review all the evidence, and see if they can find a basis for which the Supreme Court could grant certiorari, which is the term for granting a review of the case. But at this point, uh, it, it, it could be a long shot as to whether or not it would reach the Supreme Court. But uh, it's too early to tell. Mark Ruskin, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for inviting me. Pleasure to be here. We're breathing and ingesting thousands of tiny plastic fragments on a daily basis. Recent studies found that bottled water contains hundreds of thousands of nanoplastics. NTD's Jason Blair spoke to an expert to find out how this can affect our health and what we can do about it. In 2022, plastics were found to be in 80% of tested human blood samples. In 2023, plastics were found to accumulate in the respiratory system. 
They have been found in the air, water, and soil pretty much everywhere, even as far as the Arctic. Plastic is what is considered a xenoestrogen, so it, it mimics estrogens and our body, um, what, it's kind of like it can fit into our cellular receptors, which are like keyholes, but there, it's like sticking super glue in the keyhole instead because it doesn't actually signal the, the cell to do what estrogen does. And so this sort of gums up the works and then it creates estrogen dominance. Downs said this can cause issues in both women and men. Not just, you know, period problems or fertility problems, but also estrogenic cancer types. And that's for men and women. And it can also cause um, what they call man boots in layman's terms. Plastics started being widely used in the mid-20th century, but since 2005, the amount on Earth is estimated to have more than doubled. There's been so many studies on microplastics and nanoplastics affecting us um, in our lungs because we're actually breathing them now because they're so small and um, affecting our, our gut microbiome and um, just wreaking havoc on so many systems in the body. For most, avoiding all plastic is almost impossible, but there are some key areas a lot of people can focus on. Maybe switching to more natural fiber clothes, um, eliminating plastic food and beverage containers, um, filtering your air, filtering your water, um, dusting your home regularly because those tiny little particles can contain microplastics and nanoplastics. Downs also said to even avoid BPA-free plastics and to try not to use plastic-lined paper-to-go cups commonly used for coffee and other hot drinks. Jason Blair, NTD News. Google is laying off hundreds of employees. The tech giant is looking to lower costs and focus on the growing field of generative AI. Google reportedly let go of workers from multiple departments. They include several hundred from core engineering and those working on Google Assistant. The company calls the layoffs part of reorganizations made in the normal course of business. The Alphabet Workers Union described the job cuts as needless. Roughly 35% of staffers at Twitch are getting let go. That's Amazon's live streaming platform. According to Fortune, Twitch has yet to make a profit over the past nine years. Layoffs are also coming to workers at Prime Video and Amazon MGM Studios. Coming up, major shifts in the weather. A polar vortex could usher in the coldest air of the season this following week. And in the NFL playoffs, could we see a repeat of the famed Ice Bowl this weekend? Dave Martin joins us to discuss the coldest game in league history when we return. Welcome back. Extreme cold weather hitting much of the U.S. from the northern plains in Montana to the Gulf Coast in Texas. Americans experiencing the coldest air of the winter so far. NTD's David Jang has more. Dubbed a polar vortex, freezing cold air from the Arctic region is bringing near blizzard conditions to Chicago and is expected to intensify in the Midwest in the coming days. The National Weather Service is showing a rapidly intensifying storm system over the Great Lakes region Friday into Saturday. Dozens, if not hundreds, of daily temperature records could be broken during this cold snap, bringing much difficulty to travel. 
Chicago is forecasted to hit a low of minus 10 degrees on Monday. Kansas City minus 12, Denver minus 7, Des Moines minus 17. Other cities like Seattle will all see below freezing temperatures. Iowa already saw a few feet of snow this year as canvassers do their last minute push, talking to residents about the presidential race. It's cold out here, but this is just the, the finishing week in, in a long um, year of, of us being you know, out here talking to, to voters. But it's going to get even colder here. The state of Iowa is expecting below zero frigid temperatures during the Monday Iowa caucuses. On the East Coast, the strong winds and high waves pound the shore of Hampton Beach in New Hampshire. High tide to reach the seaside roads, leaving behind the sea foam on Wednesday. Drone footage showed the vehicle driving through the accumulated foam in Ocean Boulevard, north of Hampton Beach State Park. Local authorities are advising people in the affected region to take precautionary measures when traveling in the coming days. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, head coach Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots have agreed to part ways. This is after 24 seasons and six Super Bowl titles. Is this a retirement or is Belichick still looking to coach? Yeah, well, they weren't really clear on that and didn't take any questions on it. I don't think we'll ever really find out what went down behind the scenes. But I don't think it was retirement because it sounds like he still wants to coach somewhere. I think he'll have plenty of opportunities for that. You know, there's seven coaching vacancies right now. I think the L.A. Chargers would be ideal. They have a very good young quarterback in Justin Herbert. Plus, they have a lot of talent on defense, which is really Belichick's specialty. Now, one distinction that he would have to be worked out, you know, is how much say he would get over personnel matters. You know, like, is he going to want final authority over the draft, the trade, um, trades, free agent signings? Uh, that control seemed to be his in New England, and it could be a sticking point with whatever his team he uh, signs with here. Now, a, yesterday, another coaching icon, Nick Saban, retired from Alabama. Now, this would presumably be a job that most other coaches would covet. Who do you see on the short list to replace him? Well, a couple of years ago, uh, Dabo Swinney for sure would have been that at the top of their wish, wish list. You know, he played football at Alabama in the 90s. He's turned Clemson into his own powerhouse program, winning two national titles. But the last few seasons maybe haven't been his best. You know, reportedly, he's not a big fan of the transfer portal, which is essentially college football's uh, new free agency. It really has changed the way things work. Other than that, former assistants under Saban like Steve Sarkeesian and Lane Kiffin could be candidates. I'd be a little surprised at Sarkeesian. I mean, he's already got his own powerhouse program now at Texas. Uh, Kiffin, though, he's having a great run at Ole Miss. Plus, he's never spent more than four years at one place so far. So even though he's got a great roster coming back next year, I can see him going. But whoever it is, they're going to have some very big shoes to fill. Well, elsewhere in the game, NCAA, President Charlie Baker said Michigan won their title fair and square. Now, do you agree with that, given that they are under investigation for rules violations? Boy, that's a tough question. I mean, when was the last time a team, college or pro, had their championship taken away from them for cheating? You know, even when the World Series winning Houston Astros had their own sign-stealing scandal in baseball, the commissioner would not take away their title. Took a lot of heat for that. I think in both cases, it's really a PR move. If fans can't trust the team that won the title in their sport and did it cleanly, it really erodes the integrity and the trust in the game, and their whole league would suffer for sure. I think it also helped that the NCAA told Michigan and the Big Ten about the investigation so they could, they, you know, they could warn future opponents to, to change their signs.
evidence if they wanted to. I'm also doubting that if the allegations of these sign stealing were true, that they were the only ones doing it. Maybe they were just the most successful or something. Looking ahead to this weekend's NFL playoff game, some are comparing the Chiefs-Dolphins game in Fridges, Kansas City to the legendary Ice Bowl. Now, what made that game so memorable? Well, at the time, and this is New Year's Eve 1967, it was the coldest game in league history. Minus 12 degrees at kickoff, it was, the wind shield was in the minus 40s. The game was in Green Bay, Wisconsin. The Packers were playing the Cowboys for the NFL championship. I'm sure that's why they have the Super Bowl now, either in a dome or a warm weather state. Anyway, what made it even worse is that they had this heating system underneath the field and a tarp on top of the grass. But somehow the heaters malfunctioned and when they removed the tarp, there was like this dew in between the tarp and the field that instantly froze. So the players, you know, in addition to being freezing themselves, they were essentially playing on a, you know, sheet of ice, really. In any case, there were reports of frostbitten hands. The whistles for the referees froze to their lips. They actually had to adopt using plastic whistles after that. Uh, the Packers, though, won the game with a last-second touchdown. Very memorable game because of that. Now, Kansas City is forecasted for a high of 12 degrees, but this is, this is a night game. It could get, get below zero. They're playing Miami. Miami's coming in. Uh, they're flying in where it's supposed to be like 80 degrees in Miami, so it's uh, quite a contrast between the two teams there. Sounds cold indeed, Dave, as always. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.